this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Once upon a time, there was a rabbit. No, not a rabbit. Lewis Carroll already did that. How about an Amazonian river dolphin? Okay. Once upon a time, there was an Amazonian river dolphin who wondered about his cousins in the wide open ocean, free from mud and muck and strangling roots. Hey, it's not much, but it's a start. Think back to any story you really loved as a child. Chances are it starts with a tiny thread like this one. After that, it's up to the courage, imagination, and perseverance of the storyteller to write it, rewrite it, and get it out into the world with all the perspiration that that entails. My guest today, Jacob Sager Weinstein, has pulled this trick off brilliantly. He's the author of a smart, funny, utterly charming adventure trilogy for kids, the first book of which is called Hyacinth and the Secrets Beneath. It weaves together a semi-mythical history of London with details like a giant boar who communicates by handing out elegantly printed cards appropriate to any occasion, including if the Queen of England happens to spill peanut butter on your pet electric eel. Welcome to Think Again, Jacob. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's really great to have you here. And we should say, what is the secret that we should reveal for the audience right now? Uh, we have a past history. Yes, a, a dark and mysterious past history. It goes all the way back to Washington, D.C. Uh, when we were in high school many years ago uh, in a class that was probably maybe 60 yeah, kids that sounds in our, right. in our class. Right, yeah. yeah, and we'll, we will certainly talk about your books and writing, but... Um, how many years were we in that same school together? From seventh grade to... So I was, I was what they call a lifer. You I started lifer. in that school, in nursery school, and went all the way through high school. So sort of whenever you joined, I would have, uh, would have met you. Right, right. So I, I'm going to, we're going to, I think we'll, we'll keep the name of the school under wraps to protect the, the innocent and the dead. But for me, that would have been from seventh grade through 12th grade. And I don't know that I've seen you in person since we graduated, or at least since we had a, a mutual classmate and friend who passed away, maybe I saw you. Oh, yeah, then. at the memorial yeah, for yeah, that, yeah, in yeah. the school chapel. If yeah. You were there. Yeah, 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 so that would have been the last time. Although I, I do listen to the podcast, so it's sort of like you're hanging out, talking to me while I'm doing dishes, right? but, but, right. but ignoring everything I say, which is very offensive. But. Yeah, and I apologize for that. <laughs> that's, that's okay. I, when, uh, when the technology improves, I'll be listening. As okay, well. I'll good. be happy to respond. Um, so first of all, this is relevant. Um, you moved to London at some point. You grew up in America. You went through college and graduate school here? Or? Mm, that's right. Yep. Okay. And then you moved to England when you got married or uh, something? Yeah. So actually it was, I had been married at that point for six years, I think. And my wife and I moved to England for a two-year stay. And that was 15 years ago, and we're still there. Right, right. Okay, so you've been there for 15 years. So maybe this is a good point. I think we should probably, at the beginning, ought to get out of the way. Maybe you can give an overview of what Hyacinth is about, either the first book or as much as you can give away, and kind of how the, the cross-cultural thing is relevant. Sure. So uh, Hyacinth and the Secrets Beneath is about an American girl who moves to London, or, or rather she is moved to London forcibly by her mom, uh, and she stumbles on a sort of secret magical history of London. 
Um, it's a, an actual matter of historical fact that there are various rivers flowing under the city of London, but what Hyacinth learns is that the truth is that they were actually buried under their city because they have powerful uh, magical forces as, as part of their nature, and they had to be buried to protect civilization from doom. Right. Uh, and then she accidentally unleashes one of them and has to prevent the doom herself. And so obviously the fact that she is an outsider moving to London is sort of based on my experience, um, although without the actual giant pigs and mud monsters. There's uh, none of that in your uh, actual experience? I'd say they're, they're sort of like medium to large size pigs roaming around, but not the, not the actual giant ones. Well, that, I understand that that's helpful, though, in terms of like the garbage collection. That, yes, that's, that's exactly right. It's a very well-run city. So the pigs handle the garbage, the giraffes do the window washing. It's, it's very... Uh, yeah. New York is nothing like that. Uh, yeah. It's a shame. Your, your buildings are too tall for the giraffes to reach. Yeah. But uh, uh, in a, uh, a larger sense, I mean, I think that the the relationship between be, moving to London and sort of the, the origin of these books is that a lot of it was an attempt to explain things that seem weird. I think every every culture has weird things you don't notice if you're part of it. Right. But if you're an outsider, you notice. Right. So this begins with um, this begins with there being separate hot and cold water taps and hyacinth not being happy about that because your hands are always getting chapped, uh, which I wasn't aware, actually. Does that happen from cold and hot water? Uh, it, it does to me. I may just have particularly <laughs> delicate skin. Maybe I'm just a, a special, beautiful angel who, who needs special taps. But. but anyway, she doesn't like it, and so she figures out a way to, like, to mix them, and, the, and thus uh, the adventures are unleashed. Yes, that's that's exactly right. And the and as as weird and small thing as it sounds, those separate taps, I, there's something. There's certainly something that I noticed when I moved to London. And not and not all sinks have separate taps. Some right. of them do have, I guess, mixer taps. They're called. Um, like okay. I didn't even know there was a name for it because I just thought that's how things were. I think Winston Churchill at one point when he was in the U.S. when he sort of commented on this innovation that they had in America and said one day this will come to Britain and change everything. Uh, <laughs> but but by, it took a long time because by the time I moved there in 2002, again some of them had it, but it's it's still not universal. And before we leave this um, subject of international differences in plumbing, I should yes. say that that for me, the the one innovation that would totally revolutionize life in America would be bidets, which are common in my wife's country of Turkey. Yeah, the but bidet is frightening to Americans. Yeah, it's it's an odd thing. I and I will tell you by the way, just to, <laughs> that, that Britain is sort of the is is. So I love London. We stayed there. It's, it's my favorite city in the world. But in terms of plumbing, it's the worst of all worlds that they have. They don't have mixer taps or bidets. No so, bidets. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, I remember you from a million years ago uh, as my vision of you in high school and middle school is as of a very funny guy who um, used to do magic all the time and you played in nose flute and you had basically <laughs> constructed this this whole persona around yourself, which did not feel fake at all or forced. It, it felt very natural. But like, given the social realities of middle school and high school, I think it's good to have an exoskeleton. And you had a particularly inventive one. Yeah? Yeah. Can, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, first? absolutely. And I, I love the idea, actually, of as, as, a, as an exoskeleton, as a sort of an armor. Um, and it's certainly... I was certainly not conscious of it as such. I don't think there was ever a thought of, like, I'm going to... Gird my loins uh, <laughs> with nose flutes and magic tricks and, and ugly neckties was the other thing. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. So our school, we should mention, had a dress code, but it was a loose one in that you had to wear 
a tie and jacket, but you could wear any tie you wanted. And I, I exploited that loophole to the hilt. Yeah, and the audience can't see it, but I am wearing a, I, I, maybe it's not terribly ugly, but it's a big paisley tie in honor of Jacob's visit. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's an appropriate tribute. It doesn't, it's... It it's, doesn't capture the magisterial ugliness that, exactly. that you were going for. Yeah, it actually looks nice on you, which is the problem with it. But other than that, that is, it's... That is yeah. a problem. But, but yeah, and you used to hand out cards that you were in like the left-hand society. Oh, yeah, you that's right. Do you remember I, this? You I had do, these I, printed up. Maybe that's where the... So in, in Hyacinth, um, the giant boar communicates via these beautifully printed deco-edged cards. Yes. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, there, there wasn't on a conscious level, but what's great about talking to somebody <laughs> who's known me, who, who knew me then is, I, I think you put your finger on it. The, the, the conscious origin of the pig's cards was when I was thinking about the character, he's an important character in the book, so he has to communicate with everybody else. Um, I didn't want him to talk because I felt like a a giant pig in a bathing suit running through the sewers. That made sense to me. But a giant pig in a bathing suit who talks when he's in the sewer, that was, that's crazy. No one would buy that. Right, 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 right. Um, but there's a wonderful book by Ricky Jay, which I did read uh, uh, Ricky in Jay, high school in Unimi. Yeah, uh-huh. he, we should say he's, the, he's, he's like a master of sleight of hand card tricks. And he's also in a bunch of David Mamet movies for some reason. Exactly. Yeah. And also an author <laughs> on sort of strange and obscure performers. Uh, and he wrote a book called Learned Pigs and Fireproof Women. Uh-huh. Uh, which had a big influence on me when I was a, high, uh, a teenager. Uh, and then the, the titular learned pig uh, would actually appeared in London and would communicate by picking up cards that his his trainer would put down for him. Oh, okay. uh, and he would do math problems, I think. You'd ask him in math problem and he'd pick up the card with the right number. And I, I think as with most of those animals, he wasn't really, he wasn't conscious of what he was doing. He was just responding to cues from his trainer. Sure. Um, but that was in my mind as sort of a method for a pig to communicate. So how how did you come to children's writing? How did this happen? Um, so that I'll give you the the simplest answer. Although I, of course life is always more complicated than that. The simplest answer uh, is just that I, I when my kids were born, uh, I went back to kids' books. I was you know even before they were old enough to read them, we got a lot of them as gifts. Um, right. I think probably a lot of people give children's books as baby gifts. Also, we're Jewish, and that's maybe an especially Jewish thing to give. Give, books as, yeah, books as presents. Yeah, right, um, right. So, and I was just rereading them and remembering. You how, had like fifty copies of the Talmud lying around. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, uh, actually, I'm glad we had the. <laughs> this is, I'm pleased to say we. Well, there's nothing wrong with the Talmud, but actually we got like Dr. Seuss. Okay. And right. like and and Sandra Boynton, which is like my personal Talmud. So I was glad to. Boynton is great. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. amazing. She's one of those rare authors. Like you can, as a parent, you have to read any book your kid likes a thousand times. And even though her books are so simple, at least I did not get tired of it after hundreds of readings. No, there's a couple of them like her you know richard scary uh, yes. arnold lobel like yeah. the frog and toad those things are like zen koans yeah. but anyway so you oh, yeah. so, so you I, received all these children's books yes and, and i just sort of started remembering how much i love them and and that sort of sparked it so that's but but in, i guess that's the easy answer i think in in the more complex answer is that often there's no one thing that puts you in a certain direction in life right and sure. so that happened at a time i had been for a long time, I wanted to write and direct my own movies. That was my goal for right. a lot of my adult life. And I was sort of reaching a point where I was realizing that was not going to happen. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. Right. And then the perfect logical version of the story is that after that, having decided I wanted to write children's books, I had the idea for this book. In fact, it actually happened the other way around, that I sort of had the idea for this book, but I didn't act on it because I wasn't 
I guess, ready to write children's books, if that makes sense. I hadn't decided on that direction. So, but, so what was the, I mean, what was the germ? What you had the idea of the mixing of the taps and the, um, so that underground was, rivers? Like. Uh, yeah. So where the, the books sparked from, uh, I actually, I don't always remember exactly where I had my ideas, but this one I do. I was walking along the embankments in okay. London, uh, which is just this beautiful part of the city. It's along the River Thames. The architecture is great. Um, and I, I was doing a, a self-guided walking tour just from a book that I had. Oh, and, cool. And I learned that the embankment was built as part of a sewer engineering project. Wait, I'm sorry. I have to back up. I love yes. this idea of you. You're, so you're walking along with the book in hand. Yes. So yeah. you're probably literally falling over things as you're walking. I, I'm sure I was. I, <laughs> I, well, for one thing, the idea that it's weird to walk around with a book in your hand. Also, like, in the middle of one of the greatest cities in the world, to like be, be experiencing the city by reading about it in a book as you're walking. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's strange if you're not as much of a bookworm as I am. So I, so I read about that, that, that this incredibly beautiful area was built basically as cover for a sewage system. Like you had to run the pipe somewhere. It had to run along the Thames. Right. So they just built something over it. And this being the Victorian era, they built it just beautifully. Um, Got it. And so I just had the idea of, well, surely there must be an alternative explanation for why this beautiful area was built that is sort of as beautiful and majestic as the area that resulted from it. There's um, also this sewage treatment plant. What's it called? Uh, I, forget. I, I got it right here. I got it. We're getting there. Okay, yes. It's in the back of Jacob's book, and it is... This is the problem with working on a book for 10 years, no, is that I should know the details no, of my you, own work. No, there's no shoulds here. Um, it's the Crossness Pumping yes, Station. Yes, exactly. And it is like, it's insane. I'm looking at it, and it's like, you know, on the one hand, you have this incredibly sort of baroque filigreed you know wooden looking structure and then you have these like absolutely gleaming modernist steel pipes and things it's incredible it is amazing and if you are if you happen to be in london on like one of the the rare days where it is open to visitors one day got, a year right well that's, that's so, so at the time i wrote the book it was open one day mm. a year i think due to popular demand the, pumping, <laughs> the crossness sewage pumping station is now open more <laughs> due to the hyacinth oh, you uh, know, i i that fans yeah, I would love that if my book uh, sparked a renaissance in sewer appreciation. That's, I think, every writer's dream. And, you know, the real reason is, is the Victorian era. So anything they built, they made beautiful. Right. But I just sort of started thinking about, was there some sort of weird magic or mysterious reason why they went through all this trouble beyond just building the sewers? I, I seem to remember you being in like AP history in high school. Do you have a love of history? Have you read for fun history throughout the years? Or I do read history for fun. One of my... So I'm trying to say this in a way that will be respectful. To I think we had you know, the teachers at our school were wonderful, <laughs> passionate our school, people, which shall not be named, uh, and teachers who shall not be named. Yes, uh, but the the philosophy of history at that school was we were going to teach you all of world history, which in fact is I think mainly European and American history in one year. So yeah. it was this whirlwind tour, which mostly consisted of memorizing dates and facts, or at least as I remember it. Maybe yeah, I was no, just I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna uh, interrupt and out myself as having crashed on the rocky shoals of AP history. I, 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 I may have dropped the class because it was just this massive tome yes. that was like all of history in one book, and I was definitely excited by narrative and very much rebuffed by having to just memorize lists of dates and names. Yeah, and I was exactly from of that same philosophy. And I think just your use of the word narrative, I think, is key there because I was so turned off by history. I did not take a history course until my senior year of college when I had a class, I think it was with Sean Wylentz, 
who is a great writer. He's been and on teacher. this show. Oh, great, great. I didn't <laughs> hear that one. That's great. I, I feel, and so he really, he was the first, that was the first time I realized that history was about the story of mankind and it wasn't just memorizing dates. Okay. Um, and so from then I became very interested in history and, and enjoyed reading narrative history works, but that was what unlocked it for me. Right, um, right, right. And so for this book, I've read a huge amount about specifically London history. And the, 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 my first step in, in deciding I wanted to write this was I started reading about the history of this, the building of the sewers and just trying to find weird things about it that might send me down one path or another. Right, such as, like, what, what was one interesting... Um, so, well, actually, to, to go back to our giant pig, uh, that is a, a historical fact, in a sense. Well, I'll, I'll take one step back, which is, um, in the book, when Hyacinth goes underground into these magical sewers, she's pursued by people called Toshers. Right. Um, and they are searching for magical treasure. They're like scavengers. Exactly. Um, and that is an actual thing. Um, there's a, a great book from Victorian era by Peter Mayhew, Called, mm. I'm probably gonna get the title wrong, but it's something like London Labor and the London Poor, okay. where he talks to just people who have various, usually lower class jobs, and among them are people called Toshers, who lived essentially in the sewers, or, or spent all their working day in the sewers, scavenging for what they called Tosh, which in reality was silverware that washed down their coins, anything that washed down the sewer, gotcha. um, they were looking for. So that those became the Toshers in my book. And the, the description in the book of them, of like carrying a big hoe in one hand and a lantern in the other, that's what the actual Toshers did. They needed the lantern because you're wandering these Victorian sewers, and the hoe because you're, you're raking through the muck looking for, in reality, coins or forks, or in my book, magical artifacts. But so, and, and I guess as with any subculture, the Toshers had their own legends and lore. And one of those stories they told was that of giant pigs roaming the sewer. And in your book, they also have their own dialect, yes. basically. They, they're, they're almost like an underground race, as it were, that has developed its own culture. Yes, yes, exactly. And that was, that was, for me, one of the big challenges in writing it. My theory on that, my backstory for the way they talk, was that they were lower-class Victorians who were, have been separated from the rest of British society for ever since then, because they've really been living in the sewer. Right. So I wanted to sort of to start off with sort of a cockney slang, but have evolved in a different direction. Um, my British editor felt in the first draft, I had taken it in the Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins direction, oh dear. which she, she was not happy about. So I really worked with her to sort of try to make it more, it, more its own thing that was still reminiscent of cockney slang, but in a way that felt reminiscent of it, as opposed to being like a bad imitation of it. In the UK, those things must get tricky a bit the way race does over here, right? I would imagine that there's a lot of class sensitivity in how people handle accents and so on in, in books. That's really interesting. I, th there, I think there is. I feel like I've gradually clued into a lot of aspects of British life in my 15 years there. I think that's an area where I'm still slightly, probably a little tone deaf. Okay. Um, being an American, you're sort of allowed to step aside and out of the class system. So I'm sure I've made faux pas that people have just sort of let pass because what do you expect <laughs> from an American? Right, right. Um, so I think in this case, her objection was not that it was insensitive in the way that somebody of one racial group imitating another was, but that it was, it was annoying in the way that like a foreigner trying to do a British accent is, sure, if that sure, makes sense. So sure. it was sort of, it was not that I was stepping in a battle between two different British classes, but that I was firing a shot sort of against written as a whole. A secret I'll let you in on is that the, a lot of, so I, I feel like I cheated in writing a lot of this book because so okay. much of it is like real history stuff like the giant pig or the Toshers. Right, right. So I didn't have to make it up. 
or I didn't feel like I was making up. And obviously, I made this magical thing. So and I feel like I cheated on the slang because most of the Tasha slang involves London street names. Anytime I was stuck, I would think about, for like a slang phrase, I would think about geographically where that part of the story was taking place. And I would okay. look at a map and I would steal something from just like a street name. So there's a, a phrase in it. Uh, Going in around the, the glass house is it, one that comes to mind. Exactly. Uh, and so uh, in the story, you have to be very careful when you lie around magic because the idea is sort of the nature of this magic is that telling a lie around it can, can make it explode, basically. Okay. Um, so I, I wanted a phrase for that. And originally, I, uh, the phrase I used was doing the Lambeth Walk. <laughs> um, there's an old song that I love called the Lambeth Walk. Okay. Um, and that is you know, named after a street in London. And for me, it was obscure enough that it was fun to play on. But my, again, my British editor said, no, that, that's not obscure to a British person. Uh, and she did not use the analogy, but the way I would look at it is I guess it would be like if somebody use the phrase, like, staying alive. Okay. So it's like, you'd be like, wait, that's just such a specific reference. It doesn't sound, you can't project your own meaning on it. It right. already has these cultural associations. Right, right. Um, so Glasshouse Street happens to be a street right next to where my publisher, my British publisher is. Okay. And so I thought, I thought going, I thought going on the Glasshouse, it sort of has that feeling of delicacy and having to, to walk carefully around the truth or around your lie. But so yeah, so, so all the Tasha slang is one street name or another. One really interesting thing in your book, something that <clears throat> I started to understand, I don't know, maybe two thirds of the way through, is that there's this real ambiguity around, there's just ambiguity throughout about w what people's intentions are. And while that may to some extent be a feature of middle grade literature in general, I think it's especially so in your case, and that there's also an interesting critique of labeling or something, you know, where you're bas basically like, people don't necessarily behave according to the labels and the categories that we sort them into, pay attention to what they actually do. Yes, absolutely. And I'm 100% I'm, I'm that's something I was going for. There's a, a common trope in a lot of children's literature that, well, first of all, I clearly have good versus evil, which is, you know, an important theme to tell kids about. But there's, I had sort of a, a specific sneaky plot motivation for handling it the way I did, and then sort of a larger philosophical one. Right. And the sneaky, I'm trying to see if I think about, I don't want to spoil anything. You know, I'm going to suggest, if, I, if you think you're going to read the book and you're worried there's going to be a spoiler, skip forward like one minute in the podcast. If yeah. I can say that at yeah, this point. Yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, uh, vaguely phrased, but you might figure something out. So, so there's a certain trope in children's books where uh, often children's books are about uh, somebody from the ordinary world thrust into this unusual magical world. Right. And they serve as a reader substitute who learns, uh, we the reader learn about the world as they do. Um, there's a secondary trope, which is that inevitably, as soon as they're thrust into that world, they meet somebody who is their guide through that world. Um, or and sometimes they meet several guides, and there's certain assumptions that we're trained to make uh, from reading a lot of these books about the nature of those guides. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like as a writer, anytime your reader is making assumptions, that gives you an opportunity for, for mischief. The, the more philosophical reason is that although I think it's really important to teach kids about good and evil and to give them a chance to imagine how they'd react in the face of something objectively wrong and to sort of rehearse standing up for the right, I also think it's important to expose them to the idea that, that often it's not that clear. Um, right. That often people do bad things for good reasons or good things for bad reasons or things that you don't even know if they're good or bad until a long time afterwards. 
And so, yeah, gotcha. that's something that comes up a lot in this. There's a moment where Inspector Sands, who is a uh, sort of a goopy mud monster who works for the Royal Mail, talks to Hyacinth about this and explicitly says... Um, he says, there is no right side. There are only right actions. Yes, excellent. A nice hissing when you talk. That's good. Um, and I, I'm, I'm really happy you had you had I, that page I, folded I down. Yes, that page, yeah. that's great. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, so that was as as you've you've honed in on that was a really key theme of of the book for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and 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 I think also you're helping children to who are reading it to be aware of our tendency to make assumptions about the world and basically to undermine to try to be conscious of that. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, want, I should feel like I should be clear when I talk about sort of common tropes or approaches, not all books do this. I, I'm not in any way saying I'm the first, you know, all great books have done this in one way or another. Right. Um, the Narnia books start off with, I mean, it's clear the White Witch is bad, right. but Edmund's introduction to that, it's very seductive. Right, the, uh, the Turkish delights. Yes, and so which on. is one of, it's just one of, wonderful I, moment. It was, although I have to say, it set me up for one of the disappointments of my adult life when I finally had Turkish delight. They're and I was awful. like, it is, I would not betray my, my <laughs> there's, there's desserts I would betray my, brothers, my brother and my sister for, but Turkish delight is not one of them. My, my wife is Turkish and she would agree. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I don't think, I, I don't know too many Turks who like Turkish delights. Yeah, it is not their true delight. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, so you now have some experience with the industry and as well getting books for, I'm sorry, you have one, one child, two children? I have two kids. Two kids. Okay. For your own children. Where do you think we're at at this moment in terms of what is possible to do and what's being done in children's writing? Yeah. Compared to what we grew up with, for example, and what came before that. And then within that, maybe maybe the kind of evaluation of what's good for kids in books, like what should children's literature be? Well, it's in some ways, it's hard for me to answer the first question, because for me, the big difference between the books, the children's books that we read as kids and the books I'm looking at now are I read the children's books as a kid, as a kid. And I, I think there have always been authors for young people who are willing to to try risky things, who are willing to lead kids down challenging paths. And I think that that unquestionably continues. I think a lot of the difference goes to your second question, which is I'm seeing more and more of an acceptance of, by adults of all kinds of books for kids. And that's not just sort of, I think that more and more adults are willing to let their kids read something that's maybe riskier or dark, but I think more and more adults are willing to let their kids read goofy, dumb, joyful stuff that I think when we were growing up, sort of comic books were seen as sort of, well, I guess if you're not smart enough to read actual books, you could read this. Okay. And, and we were, you, you, you were a comic book fan as well, right? Sure, yeah, 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 that was something we talked about a lot. Exactly, that's right, exactly. And so, and so reading that, we, we were at that change, I think, in the popular culture where Watchmen and Sandman came out and people realized that comic books can be sophisticated entertainment for, for grown-ups. But even there, these had to be sort of literary comic books in order to make that that crossover, you know, still Spider-Man and so on was like, until Frank Miller did, you know, The Dark yes. Knight with Batman, it, you, the, those things were throwaway, more that's, or less. Yeah. That's a really good point. And even, even Batman, it wasn't that suddenly reading Batman comics was okay, it was reading Dark Knight was okay, right. or its spiritual successors. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's really true. And so it's definitely, it's been a slow, gradual thing, but I think that, that people are more willing to accept that goofy graphic novels are now as accepted as goofy 
texts and serious graphic novels are as accepted as serious texts. And the way you're sort of framing this feels like it's in a way a positive kind of liberal liberalization as opposed to say a dumbing down as someone might someone else might take it. A hundred percent. And that leads me to your second question, which I remember correctly was sort of what is sort of what are books for? Or what is, is that what you asked me? Yeah, sort of how would I see that? Kind of like what what ideally would you see as available for children in literature? I don't know what should all kids be reading, but and, and my, what's good for them? Yeah, <laughs> I guess my answer for that is is all kids should be reading stuff they like reading. Uh-huh. And I, I feel like if I were going to emphasize, if there's one thing that any parents listening to this are going to take away, and, I, and I'm not an expert, this is just one children's author's opinion, but is that let your kids, the only thing your kids should learn from books is that books are awesome. Right. So if your kid loves Captain Underpants at an age where you were reading Dostoevsky or whatever it is you think you were doing when you were that age, <laughs> it doesn't, just let them read Captain Underpants. They're okay. funny, they're, you know, they're just anything that, that make, brings us, because a kid who, who takes joy in reading now from anything may one day take joy from reading Dostoevsky, but a kid who, who learns that books are sort of this bad tasting sure. medicine will never get there. I totally get that. I mean, at the same time, speaking for the opposition, my, my concern is that children's publishing has become so professionalized at this point that there are cynical actors producing things which they are sure are going to capture almost any kid's attention the same way an ice cream sundae might. And while I wouldn't say that no child should ever eat an ice cream sundae, I, would, I, I wouldn't necessarily want them to eat it, you know, three meals a, a day kind of thing. And so if there's a proliferation of books that are cynically created to hook children but aren't necessarily that great, then the, the children themselves may not be in a position to judge all that well. That's really fair. And I, I stack the deck by my <laughs> example of like sort of a, a book parents might think was dumb is Captain Underpants. But if you read that, it's, it's joyful, smart, yeah. it's smart, it's funny. And it's, it's written by somebody who loves the act of writing and wants to share that. It's not a product that somebody manufactured. Right. And I, I admit when my kids like things that are like, you know, tie-ins to whatever TV show that's just an excuse to sell toys, it's, I do wince, but I feel like I want them to learn to trust their own judgment. And I might... I might subtly try to shape that judgment by saying, oh, now that you've read Captain Action Figure Book 77, maybe you should read Captain Underpants or something that's just gotcha. as, as exuberant but is, is well done. So you do not recommend like a bonfire of books in the living room of movie tie-in? Uh, no, although bonfire, bonfire of books would be a good, uh, <laughs> a good bookstore name if you, if you and I want to go into business at some point. Excellent. I'm not sure it would send the right message, but it would definitely get people's attention. <laughs> So let's move on to the second part of the show. We've got a couple of surprise uh, clips from Big Things Archives that our video producers have chosen. I have not watched them. Jacob has not watched them. And uh, we're just going to we're going to watch and then see where the conversation goes. This first one is called is by Andre C. Willis, who is an assistant professor of religious studies at Brown University. The video has been titled, uh, Life is Short, But It Doesn't Have to Be Shallow, How to Capture Deep Hope. When one thinks about deep hope, one thinks about about first um, avoiding the superficial hopes, like, I hope that my Domino's pizza will arrive on time, or even the ambitious hopes, I hope that my career is successful, right? These things all portend to a future um, realizable desire. 
and they situate that desire as probable. When we think about deep hope, we're thinking about something that's not linked to a desire, to the future, to an ambition, or to probability. We're thinking about a relationship to the present and a particular kind of discipline as one faces the present. Because when one faces the present, one realizes things like life is short. Even though I'd like to live long, I have no idea whether or not I will. Um, my friends, my animals are all um, in very contingent relationships to, my, to, to life itself and to me. And that we walk not on concrete, but in quicksand. So when you face those real facts about what life is, and you say, how do I relate to these facts? The answer, I think, that comes out of the work I study is that one faces these facts with a deep hope. That's not an aspiration. It's not a probability. It's not a future orientation. It's a groundedness in the present facts of existence. Unfortunately, our culture has emphasized the trivial hopes because those are hopes that link to markets and to achievements are always sort of market linked because markets are about growth, they're about ambition, they're about accomplishment, they're about expansion. So therefore, our culture really um, generates a propensity to trivial and superficial hopes, right? It counters and has made a deep hope kind of, uh, we're famished when it comes to deep hope. Uh, well, I guess for me, what I, what I think about is that the hope he's talking about is grounded in an awareness, as he says, that we're walking on quicksands, that, that you can't focus on the gratification of the future because who knows what's going to come in the future. Right. And as, as a parent, uh, just as, as a parent, this is one of the things that you wrestle with is you want your kids to be happy. You want to shield your kids from the darkness of life. Right. But I think he's making the point that you can't really appreciate this moment if you don't understand that you've got a limited supply of moments. I feel like every time I'm talking to my kids about, you know, somebody who died, I'm like quick to emphasize, oh, well, they were very old. Or, you know, when I'm talking about historical people, I say, oh, well, you know, back then doctors didn't have the medicine to cure this kind of thing. But, right. but I always, when I do that, I wonder if I'm doing them a disservice because they need to know at some point how transient and unpredictable life is. And I don't know, I still haven't figured out how to... I suppose that, that I suppose that has to happen in the context of like real and very personal examples, like when somebody dies. You yeah, know? yeah, absolutely. You know, my son, there was one moment where kid had to be like three and a half, but he suddenly realized that there was death and he was just like, I don't want to die. I don't No, I don't, you know, and just completely freaked out about it. And I remember very vividly thinking at that point, like how nice it would have been to have some handy kind of religious, well, it's okay because, you know, you, you are an angel and you will fly, you know, up into the sky. And, and there is no such thing. So one had to just sit with it. I think you and I probably have similar religious attitudes. I'm sort of a, I guess, a, an atheist-leaning agnostic, so I, I can't offer that. There's the additional complication that my kids go to a church school where the official policy is that there's an afterlife. So you don't, you also, 
like, just like I, you know, I don't want my kids to, to be the ones going to school and saying, well, there's no Santa Claus. My daddy's even worse. Can you imagine going and saying, my daddy says that death is eternal and we're all nothing and there is no afterlife. Like you don't want to so be. So you guys don't talk, you're sort of hedging around that. I tell them what I say. And you're, I, I guess, you're going around the glass house. I'm walking around the glass house. I do. <laughs> absolutely. I, well, I'm definitely honest with them about what I believe happens when you die, okay. which is nothing. Right. But I'm, I'm also trying to be honest with them about the fact that I'm just some idiot human ape being, and I've, I could be totally wrong, but just like, you know, that's right. what I think. But I'm, I guess I'm, as we talk about this, I'm realizing I'm more honest with them about what I think happens after death than I am about the likelihood of death happening at any moment. This maybe answers an earlier question, which is sort of one of the things that kids should be getting out of books is that is an exposure to that darkness. And not right. all books, but certainly that is one thing that children's books do is expose kids to the uncertainties of the world. Right. The classic start of the fairy tale is the, the mother dies and the right. kid is thrust out into the woods. That's right. Going back to our high school experience, Again, the unnamed uh, school that we went to was a very aggressively ambitious place in my yes. in my memory. Absolutely, right? Yep. We were explicitly told that we would be the future leaders of society, and and so on. And the idea of I don't know, sort of relentlessly, aggressively pursuing perfection and ambition and success for their own sakes always made me a bit uneasy. I, I guess I just wonder, like, where do you stand at this point on these questions of kind of like how you reconcile your ambitions and the things that you want to achieve in the world with the kinds of things that this guy is talking about in terms of coming to terms with impermanence and not not holding on too tightly? Yeah, I, I'm still wrestling with that. And I think I always will. I, I had a different reaction than you did to our shared school experience, which is I think I I was too easily accepted that idea that I was destined to be sort of a future leader in my field. And I, I, I mean, I think that the, you know, the fact that I wanted to write and direct movies, it's sort of a very grandiose thing of wanting to sort of create this vision. Um, but even there's even a step beyond that of for a long time, not only did it not occur to me that I wouldn't succeed in getting to do that, I just assumed I would, of course, be one of the great writer directors because... I'm me, and therefore, sort of right. everyone is the star of their own story. And um, am, am, am I right, by the way, sorry, asterisk here, yeah. am I right in, in remembering that your brother was on the Harvard Lampoon and maybe wrote for The Simpsons yes, for a long time? Yep. Yeah, uh -huh, absolutely. Uh, so uh, you've got Kitra, that Exactly, in your exactly, yeah. yeah. So it's, and, that, and that made it seem much more, and again, he did not just succeed in that. He is in, a genius, Incredibly in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And so, absolutely, so you have that. And so for me, I found that, so first of all, when I, when I let go of that ambition to be a film writer director, that was, there was very much a period of mourning for that. And then I think as I entered middle-aged, the thing I let go most was the idea that, that whatever I did, I was going to be one of the greatest at. That okay. I think that for a lot of bright people in their early 20s, you, like, you're, you think you're going to be Mozart, and then you get to your 40s and you realize you're lucky to be Sally. <laughs> right. And, so, so I wrote a couple of drafts of this book that, that of, of Hyacinth, and the first draft was horrible. And what made it horrible is that I was trying to make it this very elevated, arch, literary tone that I sort of thought was what a great book was supposed to be. Got it. Um, and I, I was sort of, to try to bring it back to the, the clip we saw, I wasn't really experiencing what the book was. I right. was sort of putting this 
this false ambition on it, not even of, of making it good, but of making it acclaimed, I guess, was what I had in my mind. This is the kind of thing that gets that gets applause and plaudits. Got it. Because, um, I mean, even Mozart probably would not have benefited by trying to be Mozart. You exactly. Know? Yeah. Exactly. He was writing stuff he liked. And he was saying, <laughs> this is what the song should be. This is what I... Um, and when I when I sort of started rewriting it and taking a delight in in the characters and what was actually happening and writing the story, a story that came out of me instead of that was come, that came out of who I am and who I was in the moment of writing it, rather than what I thought I was supposed to be, right. it just became much better and more readable. And so it's like both, you know, much more fun and, uh, and a huge relief, I think, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it is. And just sort of, it's a tremendous, it's much more relaxing to be who you are yeah. and being good at what you're good at rather than being good at what you think you're supposed to according to some sort of standard that somehow you absorbed without really realizing it. Writing rather than being a writer. Yes, Or exactly. trying to be a writer. Yeah. yeah. So let's see what the, let's see the second clip that they've got for us. This is Michelle Thaler. She's an astronomer and a research scientist, and it's called What is the Next Stage of Human Evolution? You know, one of the oldest questions I think humankind has asked is if there's other life in the universe, is it very, very different from us or is it very similar? And, you know, even when it comes to the microbial level, even like very small like bacteria things, you know, right now we're exploring the solar system looking for evidence of life on Mars or on some of the icy moons of Jupiter and Saturn. There, there are oceans underneath the ice. And even if we found a microbe, I think one of the first questions is, does it have something like DNA? Is it similarly put together the way we are? Or is it something very different, even at the microbial level? And then you take that question and you, you move even farther. I mean, what would aliens that are more evolved look like? Aliens that maybe even have advanced civilizations? And this is one of these things where I'm very aware of the limits of human imagination. You know, I mean, Einstein famously said, you know, the universe is not stranger than we do imagine, it's stranger than we can imagine. And I think that a lot of times people say, well, we have one evidence of how life started and how life can exist. And it sort of makes sense that maybe something similar would have started on, on different planets. I think actually when you, when, you, when you think about civilizations, aliens out there that are advanced, that maybe even have more advanced civilizations than we do, the thing that I really can't get around is that I think that the definition of being human is about to change a lot in the next century. I think that humans and AIs and computers will begin to merge and actually become somewhat indistinguishable from each other. This is not some Terminator scenario of the AIs taking over and destroying everything. But, you know, for example, I have a friend who has cochlear implants. He was profoundly deaf and then had cochlear implants put in. And I've gone to uh, classical music concerts with him. I remember I went to go see Carmen. And uh, there were tears, you know, rolling down his face as he was listening to Carmen. And he knows that he doesn't hear like a human being hears. There are wires that are directly implanted into his brain that stimulate the auditory section. It never goes through an ear. And he upgrades his software every now and then, and then he hears differently. All of a sudden, the sounds are different, and he actually hears different ranges depending on how his software has been updated. But it's, he always reminds me that what technology did for him was make him more connected, more emotional. Um, so I remember somebody was colorblind, but they actually have an auditory cue as to color, and so it sort of changed the way their brain responds. The, the implants that are coming, and they will be coming soon. You know, once you could implant 
artificial ears in people, why just here with the range of a human, right? Why not here with the range of a dog or a whale or a bird that can hear much higher and lower pitch frequencies than we can? That will come soon. And then when we can augment our eyes, why just see visible light? Why not see x-rays and ultraviolet and infrared light and everything that's out there? I don't think there's any way around this that the aliens we're going to encounter, if they are advanced from us by many centuries of technology, are going to be indistinguishable from AIs. And I don't think we are looking for biological life. I think we should spend more time thinking about what life really will evolve into. It may be that the biological being that I am was just a first stage in evolution and a necessary and, and maybe even beautiful next step in evolution is for us to be augmented and maybe someday to completely design our artificial bodies. So that was pretty fascinating. Yes. Um, I'm, I don't know I, what to, I, I'm just still absorbing that. I don't know what to, <laughs> I don't know what to add to that. What, uh, what, yeah, I don't know. What augmentate, what, what, um, what augmentation would you choose first? Uh, well, so this is, this is going to show you how limited my human imagination is. I'm a middle-aged guy, so while she was talking about just sort of the wonders of sort of the next stage in human evolution and encountering alien species, and I was thinking, so I could actually, like, hear the same stuff I could hear when I was 20? That's amazing. And then I had to sort of catch myself and go, wait a minute, why am I limiting myself to that? Because that, you know, what she's saying is, why would we limit ourselves to just repairing right. or just bringing ourselves up to what we think is standard? But there's something very human in thinking of that as... The measure of all things. Man is of man is a measure of all things. I mean, so where I go with this, right? And admittedly, I think I incline dubious, cynical, pessim pessimistic on these sorts of things. But where I go is, we have a hard enough time understanding ourselves as we are. Yes. So, like, if we have unlimited options. You know, if I can just plug the entire works of Shakespeare into my head and have them immediately accessible, plus be amphibious, I just feel like w with the capacities that we have, we make enough mistakes and take long enough to figure ourselves out. I think that's really true. And I think the other concern that occurs to me, which is, is what you're talking about, understanding ourselves, it's, it's understanding each other that, as she says, we will soon, relatively speaking, have essentially an infinite number of options, which means that any two people are going to choose different options. And it's hard enough, you know, I live in the US and the UK, right. and I can see the cases where subtle differences in how irony is expressed lead to these huge misunderstandings. <laughs> but can you imagine where like, we're literally hearing different vocal frequencies where I'm making sounds that you cannot hear. How do we, how, where does, how does empathy survive that? Indeed. I, I feel like, first of all, I feel like you end up in a kind of a space race. I mean, it would be, it would be almost impossible to resist, for example, upgrading your own memory to whatever the maximum memory capacity is at the moment, right? Yes, absolutely. But then if you, presumably you need a certain amount of money to afford that. And then right, once, so that. once you've got the money to do that, then presumably your increased intellect allows you to make more money because now you're better at whatever it is you're doing. So you'd immediately go to your values, right? So my, right. my val I value creativity. I value the intellect. So I, I, you know, that those are the areas I'd be thinking. How do I boost wisdom? How do I boost creative thinking? I guess. Yeah. So supposing you boost your artistic abilities. So to the point where now you can create things that nobody has created before, but. But are the things you are now interested in creating, to go back to the, the original, right. the first step, the things that come out of who you are in that moment, are those going to be of interest to your non-augmented fellow humans? Or are you, to maybe give this a tone of optimism, 
<laughs> I mean, all art and creativity has thus far throughout human history been this amazing tool for letting us see things through other people's eyes. That's right. So I can watch a movie or read the translation of a book from a totally different culture. And as long as it's based in certain universal human emotions, I can pick up the different details of the culture and understand how those play into the universal human feelings and experience. Right. So my hope would be that that as long as it's humans creating these things or sentient beings with an interest in communication, even if they're non-human, I will then be able to experience and see the world through their augmented eyes. This gets back to something that came up a couple episodes ago when I was talking to Carl Ove Nausgaard, uh, Norwegian writer, about how strangely the greatest artists uh, seem to, and then this goes back to what you and I were talking about earlier today as well, that they seem to capture their own subjective lens on the world in a way that somehow gives other people access to a more objective sense of connectedness, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So hopefully, presumably, the augmentation would make you more creative in a way that expresses your own voice, right? Yes. If it doesn't, then I don't even know what creativity means at that point. I don't either, but, if, but when I get the right augmentation, I will. <laughs> My favorite fictional conception of sort of augmented human is the video game Deus Ex. Oh. Uh, which is, I don't know if you've played that. It's... Uh, well, it sounds ex extremely familiar. Uh, there's the first one was, I think came out in like 2001, because I remember playing it around the time of September 11th. Huh. That was sort of my excuse, like my escape from the real dystopian world we were in okay. into this fake dystopian world. Explain but, it a little, yeah, because um, I don't remember this game. So yeah. it's a, it's a, a role-playing game. Mm. And you have this character who you can then decide their characteristics and change them and tweak them as you go along, okay. which is sort of a common conceit in computer games. Um, but what this clip is talking about, I guess, is that in a certain, this is going to become our reality, that you're going to change your character stats Right, now. right, right. Um, but it's, it's set in this Boost world. Boost your charisma. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> sign me up for that one. I definitely could use that. Um, so it's, uh, it's set in a world where there's this nanotechnology that people can use to augment their various abilities. And it being a game, you augment them to to get around various obstacles in the game. You can okay. augment your hacking ability or your strength to break down a door instead of hacking through it. Got it. But it so it's it, very utilitarian. Yes, it's got a utilitarian, but it's it's very good in that, I guess to, to continue our theme of being true to yourself, it's doing something that only games can do, I think, which is it's giving you the rewards, the incentives that games do to like move on to the next bit. Right. But in doing that, it's luring you into making certain morally questionable decisions that most games let pass unremarked on. Gotcha. But every once in a while, the game will suddenly hold a mirror up to your face and go, you realize what you just did to Look get what to this you've part. become. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, people, if they could, they, they, you know, because people's values differ greatly. Some people would become massively physically strong just so that they could overwhelm others, or they'd become smart in ways that made them sort of better at outwitting other people other people. And so you'd end up with a, I think you'd end up with a real divergence of cultures. And then you might also have the people who refuse to upgrade in any way, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, the Amish of, the, of this new world. <laughs> yeah. So that divergence is not inherently a bad thing, right? I feel like one of the cultural changes that, of the past 20 years is an appreciation of diversity and a recognition that the world and countries are stronger when you let people express their own personalities and their own strengths. And right. you're, not, you're not one uh, monoculture. That's right. 
But if you like boost and amplify the kind of cultural and personal differences between people, I fear that where that ends up is 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 in war, conflict, that kind of thing. Because it's not because then you go farther and farther away, presumably from any common ground. Yeah, you're right. There and there. I think that throughout human history, as different as we've been, there have always been these links of this ability to communicate with each other and tell each other our stories. And I think sometimes we stretch that thin, but we've never snapped it. So I guess the fear is that this yeah. would... But, but one of my favorite recent depictions of aliens is the movie Arrival. Yeah. They see time itself in a different way than we do. That's right. Um, and obviously this is a human fiction. It's, a human, it's not really aliens. It's, it's a, the humans who made the movie communicating with we humans in the audience. So maybe that's why we imagine we would be able to communicate with aliens. But it's... I guess it's a question that we always wrestle with is how do we communicate with things that are so different from us? Indeed. I mean, I suppose that with augmentation, you'd go through, like with everything else, you'd go through historical learning phases. So there would be a time when it started to become increasingly possible to diversify ourselves in incredible ways. And then we would experiment and we would see some of the consequences, both good and bad, and then either consciously or just over time through a kind of evolution, as she was putting it, come to some sort of shared values around how to use this stuff. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I, I have to admit that while you were saying that, I was listening in terms of your point, but I, I almost started laughing because we're sitting here <laughs> talking about how this strange new world that we, is unlike <laughs> anything we've, expe- we've, we've ever experienced, where we're augmenting ourselves. And I'm looking at you, you're wearing glasses. So you've augmented your vision in a way that for much of human history, humans couldn't, although glasses have been around, I think, for millennia. That's you're, true. You're wearing uh, headphones uh, so you can hear this podcast as it's going. So you're augmenting your hearing in a way. We're speaking to a microphone, so we're projecting our voice to I don't know how many vast numbers of people that know the greatest orator in history couldn't have done a century ago. So I feel like certainly the pace will be faster, but I feel like culture has adapted to all these incredible, weird bionic augmentations we've got in this room. So I I hope we could continue to, to adjust. So, you know, these augmentations right now we're using to communicate with people, right? You and I are talking. Right. The conversation we're having is communicating to everyone who's listening to this podcast. So... And this is a very new thing that there's this incredible, strange augmentation of the phone and the microphone and all these things that have evolved over the past couple of decades. And we're combining them just to talk to people. So I hope that speaks well of the human desire and ability to use these things to stay to stay connected. And on that positive note, um, we are already augmented and we're, we're doing okay. I think this is a good place to end it. Jacob Sager Weinstein, thank you so much for coming on Think Again. And Jacob's book is Hyacinth and the Secrets Beneath with more to come. Thanks again. Thank you. It's been great. It's been a real pleasure. So much fun. And that wraps up this week's episode of Think Again. That was uncharted territory for me, having a guest on the show who I've known for so many years, and I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're enjoying these conversations and you'd like to get involved, just uh, come find us on Facebook. We have a group there called Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast, and feel free to post what you're reading, what you're thinking about. We'll be back next week with something completely different, and I hope you can join us.